0: Hello and welcome to Under the Skin. I'm Russell Brand. The guest this week is Jordan Belfort, a.k.a. Oh, that's right. Oh, 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 betting. It's the Wolf of Wall Street. Wolf of Wall Street's on the show. This is an amazing conversation. You're going to love it. Jen, did you fancy Wolf of Wall Street? No, but it's my favourite That's
1: because I had a straw in my mouth. Mm, people can use excuses. No, my like No, it's, it's one of my favourite axes
0: what that like it's what he say voice yeah, go, I like people who talk like that noise me yeah, well like some sort of New Jersey he's yeah. like that huh? yeah I like that yeah I liked it he was cool wasn't he yeah what is he a sexy salesman golem why Gollum? is he sexy <laughs> is he a sexy salesman Gollum. golem sexy salesman oh, I don't know he's, a, he's fraught intense highly vibrating uh, febrile. is that insulting I mean Gollum is not the best
1: maybe like a wolf would be better <laughs>
0: Oh, <laughs> boom, so it's not the column <laughs> of Wall Street. <laughs> As the whoopsie of Wall Street. <laughs> Frank, For all you Frank Spencer fans out there in 2021. Um, well, look, I thought, listen, I said to him that I thought he was fantastic. I think he's fantastic. My favourite bit of this is when he does indeed, that sort of Straight art. Straight line. Straight line. <laughs> Straight line thing. Yeah, it's amazing, Jen. <laughs> I think I'm gonna be doing some of that straight line. You do
1: it anyway. Do I? Yeah, that's why you liked it.
0: <laughs> I knew yeah, I was great. It's
1: not straight line
0: within though. <laughs> <it>? <laughs> the curvy wonky <laughs> bendy line is going up and down. We're going round in circles. We've just popped into town. I'll see you by the beach, my boy, I buy you something nice. Maybe a lollipop or just a bit of ice cream. Oh you see the wolf or wolfy and Anyway, look.
1: Look, we're not here to talk <laughs> about
0: that, are we? We're not here to talk no. about that. Uh, he's written books. He's got his own podcast, which I'm going to go on. Do you know the a- name of his own podcast, the Jordan Jen? Belford podcast. Well, you should see how she's dressed. She like, looks like the big Lebowski went on holiday <laughs> and had a daughter by mistake.
1: That's,
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's what you look like. Put on the banter decanter. Press the colour box. <laughs> banter decanter. Canter, canter. Oh! Betty. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Now, listen, Jen, what have you been doing? You're on any dates or anything?
1: No, I did three hours of gardening.
0: Who times gardening? <laughs> no, I it's just. A bit activity. I didn't
1: time it, but then I realised I've been gardening. Retrospectively. Yeah.
0: Oh, well done. This is what it's like inside your mind. <laughs> oh, gardening, gardening. Then stop gardening. <laughs> My God, it must have been three hours of gardening. It's <laughs> yeah. four o'clock. I started at yeah. one. What time no, did you start? I started at 11. I am? Yeah. That's a sensible time, I suppose. Midday, Sunday. Then I painted
1: the final chair. Remember, you were texting me. Yeah, I know you've you been painting You asked me chairs. about the chair. <laughs> the,
0: the Swiss the game chair. was on. Huh? Are you watching a Swiss game? Yeah, you're into this. She's banging to them. No, Euros. but then I got bored. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was doing some gardening. I was painting a chair, then I got bored. <laughs> yeah,
1: I must, what am I supposed to do? Then
0: <laughs> I hand-washed the car. Hand washed it. Yeah. Why are you so, Why are you emphasizing hand washed? Because I didn't
1: go and get it washed in the machine. I did Listen, it myself.
0: I washed the car. <laughs> as a piece of language, covers all those bases, Jen. If you say I wash the car, I won't go in a machine.
1: <laughs> How could I could have used a power <laughs> with your legs. A power thing. A power
0: hose thing.
1: <laughs> Nothing. This is I about- used a sponge. But darling, use the <laughs> one, Yeah, is
0: this when you want the banter to canter? Yeah, banter to canter. Just do a banter <laughs> again now. We've decanted it. We've decanted That banter for you. This is all content, all gold. <laughs> Two ninety nine a month. <laughs> no refunds. Now uh, we've got uh, Wolf for Wall Street <shaped> coming up later on the show. I should be back on the radio. I'm good at this, aren't I, Gal? Oh yeah. I'm on natural. Yeah. I could have been the next Chris Miles. Up-to-date references. Oh, Betty, you know. <laughs> uh, or Stormzy, though. He was at Glaston Prairie <laughs> in that vest. Oh. What's he trying to... Oh. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not in touch, am I? I'm, the fact is I'm middle-aged. Yes, yeah, I know, no. Jen. I know what you're going to say. You're too gorgeous to be middle know. I know. You, I know no. Well, <laughs> how you do you tra- feel coming up to, to 50? To be... Oh, I see. Oh, I see, Jen. You think you can get me with numbers? You think you can get me an interdimensional wizard with numbers? I live beyond time, man. Do you know what Prince said? Prince said, I'm not a number, I'm an age. Now, admittedly, he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) Of old age. But... But the fact remains the same. Me, Prince, people like us, we're not tethered by age like you in your Hawaiian so shirt, you gardening for three hours. Put on a jingle, because we're going into the comments now. First comment. Now it's over comments. I always enjoy your conversations with Jenny May Finn, Says Tar TarBear85. Is she very elderly? Her voice is quite quavery, weak and vulnerable. Or well, has she got some sort of wasting disease? That's a bit of a hurtful comment, <laughs> <laughs> Tarbell. I eighty-five old Sam, but accurate. accurate to the hilt. <sighs> I love this topic. I've always been a believer. I was talking about the Jeremy Corbyn episode actually some of those things I just <laughs> said were lies. Now the Jeremy Corbell episodes where we talked about UFOs and that. Look, I don't know anyone could uh, could today think we're alone in this universe. Those of you that met Jenny Mayfin. Might pray to be alone in the universe, <laughs> but how could you believe that you were? And then there's a sort of a, lots of emojis of spaceships and stuff. I didn't know they were out there. Mm-hmm. I'm amazed enough by the emojis, yeah. let alone the actual spaceships.
1: Maybe they are the aliens. I'm not gonna human that. <laughs> Sunday Zed
0: Crows, wow, with an alien face as they are. <laughs> there's nowhere to go with that, go, is there? There's nowhere to go. I truly hope they are honest, funny. <laughs> Listen to this Sunday Zed Crows, these are good. All right, Sunday's so there Cross. Thanks for listening. I hope that the aliens are honest, <laughs> funny, caring and wise. <laughs> I hope so as well. But they might have a whole different set of values. Right? I mean, they're going to have. That's what alien means. It's going to be other. So funny and caring oh, that's like you're describing Eric Morecambe another <laughs> up to the minute <laughs> <laughs> um, might make some new friends so I can hang out and have great conversations Sunday's Ed Crows if you need company and love you've got us mate We're, we got you now there's a listener shout out have we got a jingle for that yeah do you want to hear it yeah press the colour box <laughs> listener shout outs. <laughs> oh yeah who needs modern references when you have up-to-the-date beats <laughs> that I I, I actually uh, sell rhymes like weight, and I serve up the freshest beets, is what I will say.
1: It's just like the Dave Chappelle podcast. <laughs> There's
0: nothing wrong with my cardigan.
1: I didn't say there was anything wrong. I said, why did you call it deconstructed? Because it is deconstructed. How? It's, it's a comment.
0: You? It's a comment on a cardigan. Look what do you the...
1: mean it's deconstructed? It's look... look at
0: the seams. Look at the patches they on the elbow. They well
1: made, not deconstructed.
0: That's p- that's how well deconstructed it is. What do you think, Alicia? I'm taking your advice. Alicia knows about style. Is
1: it deconstructed? It's is
0: really it... nice. See.
1: What? This is not going to be the coat all over you again, don't know isn't anything. it? I,
0: listen, I was once in GQ magazine and then I was rejected from their party <laughs> <quite> <laughs> <laughs> unceremoniously. But for a while I was in there and I remember thinking that I looked very nice. I think I got like a prize, didn't I, for looking nice. I didn't, didn't look nice. Hmm? I didn't say you didn't look
1: nice. I didn't say you didn't look nice.
0: Oh, actually,
1: and you're I, backtracking. You're backtracking. That's why it's deconstructive. You've gone on
0: the attack. What? Now, <laughs> time for a listener shout-out. Sandra McGee says, "I'm writing to express my deepest gratitude for your work. Thank you. I was spinning my wheels back in 2018. My life became very difficult. Under the Skin was an hour of sanity, bloody hell, mate, for me every week. <laughs> and through that, your book, I found your book Recovery. I was inspired to change my life for the better. Well done. I was still, I still listen to Under the Skin. Thank you. On Luminary every week." through your podcast I found other voices sanity to help mental me from afar so thanks now crack on and keep bringing awesome content to the world thank you Sandra for that lovely encouragement oh what's this bit though could you do something about that frightful Irish woman is it some sort of scheme to bring damaged people back into the community I get if it messages what
1: I get messages saying that I should be mean to you back
0: no you do not Gem it's hearing black and white from Sandra McGee is it, if it is a project to help mentally ill people back into the community, <laughs> it may be ill advised in this instance. Start with someone with a few more social skills than this deranged <laughs> menace. Lots of love, Sandra McGee. Oh, well, thank you, Sandra. It's a lovely message. trip?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Doing well, aren't you? Yeah. Work's going well. Is it? Got a new boyfriend, girlfriend? No. I, like the new people?
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: Pain, you say that. Didn't you? Pain, you should be a bit kind to others. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Okay. The moment you've all been waiting for. Well, those of you just
1: watching it like those TV of you show. that
0: he's helping me, give me a boost. Uh, those of you that are interested in the world of finance, the world of corruption, uh, get some insights on the 2008 crash. That might be another good bit to include, by the way. Um, That's a really good bit, the 2008 crash bit, the bit where he sort of tells you methods and techniques for bypassing people's free will, the bit where he talks about Bitcoin, all good bits, Jen. Hey, listen, Above the Noise, I've got a brand new meditation podcast called Above the Noise. I'll be releasing a new guided meditation every Wednesday. Please go and check it out. It's brilliant. We've been more, so we've been influenced by Midnight Miracle, haven't we, Jen? Yes. Heavily. And now we've changed the meditation to be a lot, lot more like Midnight Miracle, what it might be like is say, I don't know, you know around the time David Beckham would do a fancy haircut and then someone who just wasn't that good at football <laughs> would have a similar fancy haircut. It might be a bit like that. be like when sort of, I don't know, John Joe Shelby <laughs> shaved his head, <laughs> although I think he probably did that for his own reasons. And Also, I get the idea John Joe Shelby's not someone to fuck with. No. John Joe, your look and you are all right by me. Thank you. Uh, Fiona Randell says about above the noise thank you so much for this irritability meditation you must have a lot of cause for irritability <laughs> meditation in your work environment soured continually by Gaelic irritants God, really good turn of phrase uh, I've also been feeling around my meditation and irritability I did the TM training I was a bit lost it was uniquely me to feel emotionally imbalanced around this time I was supposed to be effortless and was started to She's getting irritable when she meditates. She feels better now. you <laughs> are Thank you getting you irritated very... by
1: the government? Can't you
0: read it? Yeah, <laughs> it's taking too long. Can't you read it? You read it. She the shortest it. one. Do some contributions. Well,
1: you don't like it when I speak.
0: No, I don't enjoy it, but let's try it. <laughs> you do this, and then we'll go into Jordan Belfort. Fiona oh. Randall
1: says, parenthesis, re-irritable. <laughs> parenthesis, you going to read out the word parenthesis. parenthesis. <laughs> Thank you. So, there's extra O's. <laughs> for that oh god, one. this is like
0: a sleep meditation. Oh. What's Chanel. that vocal throat sound? What's that glottal <laughs> stop? <laughs>
1: oh. Chanel has pointed out something I've also been feeling around my meditation. I did the TM training and was feeling a bit lost, as if it was uniquely me to feel emotionally unbalanced around this thing. That was supposed to be effortless, they doing these quotation things over those weeks.
0: If I didn't and have yet- a tangerine right now, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be lashing out. And
1: yet, I was starting to be dominated by feelings of irritability. This session of yours was really helpful. Keep up the good work. It is so very helpful. Lots of love. Full stop.
0: Do you remember that program, Why Don't You, from when <laughs> we were kids, where they'd allow children <laughs> <laughs> to At least I
1: got through the comment.
0: You did well, you, you did well. And actually, thank you for your comment, because above you're the noise, welcome. this may be ribald and playful, boisterous, bonhomous, but over there on above the noise, we delve deep into the spirit. There's beautiful meditations on there that I really, really like. Why are you holding out for? You've got for? Like, it's So com- like you're serving me in a rest <laughs> You've got a tour
1: coming on.
0: Now, if you ain't got tickets to my tour yet, get tickets to my tour. I'm doing, uh, like, I only do about 20 days. In fact, I'm not calling it a tour. I'm doing live appearances.
1: Why not a tour?
0: Because I'm like, doing this Shakespeare streaming thing, and I don't want to contractually release a tour <laughs> at the same time as that. But live appearances, I'm able to do. So I'm doing a sequence of live appearances, travelling from place to place, <laughs> doing them. But, and also, I go home every night. It's not really a tour, is it? It's not like no. Led Zeppelin.
1: No.
0: It's, it's not like... Just it's, as cool, though. I'd say cooler in, in some regards, because rock and roll was approximating and in a sense s- simulating the idea of rebellion and change, where I actually am not, <laughs> where I'm actually offering sort of genuine ideas for consideration and contemplation. Anyway, go to my website, russellbrand.com. all over the south of England, loads and loads of live shows. All right, can we listen to, ooh, The Wolf Wall Street? Yeah. I always worry, you know I worry about, Gal, that the guests will listen yeah. to the podcast. You know, and they're like, okay, I'm gonna listen to this podcast. Yes. No, he's a good he was a good kid. I liked him. Reminded me a lot of myself. Had a lot of pluck. He had he had cojones, you know? Real cojones And he listens to it. It's like me going, Oh Jimmy, woo, woo!" Very really annoying to hear that. And other listeners as well. What must they think? Anyway, what do you think? In my new item. <laughs> now, let's get on with Jordan Belfort, Wolf of Wall Street. You're going to learn from this. You're going to learn about 2008. And you're going to learn also sort of about individualism and the power that you can draw from within yourself and how you can alter your reality with will, but how that will might take you off in all sorts of peculiar and extraordinary directions. Watch that film. But it's on a it's like kind of a red list for drug addicts, that film. If you watch it, it's like, oh, my God, drugs are great, aren't they? You know, so here he goes, Jordan Belfort. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told. And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Jordan, thanks man. Thanks for coming on Under the Skin. Sure. Are you in recovery?
2: Um, yes and no. I mean, so, oh, so my, well, no, like, for example, I had a massive, massive drug problem as everyone knows. No I, way. I, and kidding. my drugs were quaaludes and cocaine primarily, but you know, I kind of never met a drug that I didn't like pretty much. That was my, my kind of story. And then I never drank though. I was not a drinker, whatever. I just didn't enjoy it. So I can probably never say once in maybe twice in my life, I was actually drunk. So when I first got sober for about 12 years, I didn't even take a sip of alcohol, anything. I was like just completely out of it. So now, I, you know, I'll have a little drink here and there, but I haven't done a drug in, since April 17, 1997.
0: Congratulations. Th- those powerful appetites, which most people will know from the depiction of them in the famous movie, Wolf of Wall Street, looks like, um you know, you've got some serious energy and appetites and drives going on it once you start removing you know like that sort of great uh commercial spirit and ingenuity that we see you deploy in at least in the framework of the film and that you go into in more detail in your book you know like when you curb it in that area and when you curb it in the consumption of drugs and alcohol where have you found expression of that energy mate
2: i think i've i i haven't so much curbed my appetite for success and ingenuity as much as there are certain values within that that have become far more important to me than just making money. So I think the value of earning money and you know having awesome things and surrounding yourself by yachts and planes and I still love that stuff. It's just not my highest value anymore. So my highest value now is actually giving value to people. And ironically, you make even more money when you do that. So it's sort of a delaying of gratification. I've never lost that spark or spirit or desire to be ingenious or have you know, ingenuity, so to speak. Um, but it's just not about like the end game. Is that all right? I want to do that. I just make as much as I can. It's more about how do I, you know, stay relevant in a world where everybody is sort of screaming to be relevant, to just be honest and significant. How do I give massive value to people and then monetize that value in a way that I get rich, but they also get massive success as well. So I think the big mistake I made when I was very young was I thought that the purpose of business was to make money. It's not. The purpose of a business, a well-functioning business, is to deliver value in a cost-effective way so you make money. And while it might seem like the same thing, it's actually very different because when your purpose of business is to deliver value, it's about how do I have this awesome message and get it in front of people? How do I deliver my products in a way that when I can charge people, they are awesomely happy and I'm making an awesome amount of money?
0: Do you think that those values, which seem perfectly reasonable to me, have become untethered from reality? Like when we look at sort of the um, outliers of free market culture, it, the common depiction and understanding of it, Jordan, is that it's sort of and I guess that's why your film was, the film of your book and your life was such a success is because it is it seems nihilistic it seems free from morality and it seems uh, seems to be aligned with the most um, carnivorous appetites in human beings like there is an aspect of individuals where all you want is pleasure and power but most of us that have played with those energies reach a point where you bottom out on it where it creates sort of pain for yourself and others but it doesn't but culturally it does seem to me at least and I don't know anything like as much as you do nowhere near obviously it does seem from the outside looking in that the sort of the financial industry um, big business big tech big energy aren't like sitting around saying how can we deliver value unless they need it to look like that's what they're doing so that they can carry on
2: doing their shit so I think one thing that I'm sure you learned about drugs I know I did was that you know, you know, nothing in excess is good. Like you know, everything up to a point can be great. And I think that like I always say like you know, using drugs is almost like a privilege. Like you get you get to use them until you screw up and you lose the privilege because you can't use them normally anymore, right? I think capitalism is very similar. I think human nature is very similar. So, for example, if you look at companies like Facebook and Google. They start off with this really high-minded ambition, which is like, "Hey, you know, we're going to get this way free. We're going to create something that people love. We're going to solve a problem, really relieve a pain point, and to as many people as we possibly can. And we don't have to charge them because we know if we deliver something awesome to them, then it's just going to, you know, it's just going to be easy to monetize by running the business correctly. The problem happens when you this is human nature takes control. So you have a good idea, a noble ambition, but then there's this idea of why does the CEO of the company make three zillion times as much as the average employee? And why is it not more of a sharing of the wealth? Why why does it always evolve, seem to evolve into this exagger, this gross exaggeration of what would have been a really amazing thing? And I think that's where we look at, like, for example, like, okay, banking. I think the purpose of banking can be very noble and it can be very important in underbanked, Economies and populations are typically suffering badly. But then you see this gross exaggeration of, well, how does it turn into the financial crisis in 2008? And why would someone like a Jamie Dimon or the head of a Goldman Sachs make, you know, 58 million? Did they really need to make that much while the average worker makes that much less? So it seems like there's almost like this unchecked, unbridled capitalism ends up becoming a gross exaggeration of itself. But I don't think that means you should condemn capitalism or big business
0: it no uh, that uh, that's a, that's a, a valuable point mate i've got lots of like not lots i've got a few friends that work in the city but the friends that i love and um there's psyched that you're coming on here they're also i should mention men that are in recovery like uh from addiction mm-hmm. they look up to you as a kind of a like a great icon and <laughs> now like in the in the sort of context of the film and i, I know enough to know that uh, the depiction of someone's life in film is not reality because of the requirements of structure in a film and present in a film but it sort of seemed like the outcome of that movie at least was like that there wasn't a great deal of learning other than maybe a bit of camaraderie and brotherhood between uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character and Jonah Hill's character. You and, uh, like, Jonah Hill's character. Like, so, like... When you look at life, you've already talked about having a slightly different value system and watching that movie, like anyone, like people with addiction issues or whatever, like it's exciting, man. That's one them, that's on a red list for a lot of addicts, that kind of film, because you can't <laughs> watch that shit and not think like,
1: what? <laughs> you know,
0: it's, it's too exciting to watch you sort of tip tiptoeing through the bodies at an orgy or you putting away drugs in that kind of way, you know. Like um, did you have you emerged from that with a kind of personal awakening, other than like I want to do business more responsibly? Is there anything else? Like I know you're a father, for example. I, I don't know what your family situation is now, or what your morals are now, or whatever. Mm-hmm. I just what has come from having such an extreme experience in the world of finance?
2: Yeah, so I I think that um on some level you know what you saw in the movie and in the books and you're right the movie is is accurate but it also has to be structured in a way where time is collapsed Characters are collapsed to serve the narrative, right? So you get this wild, like, "Oh my god!" in your face, like, "How could this have happened?" And you know, wow, it just seems like they're on this wild ride with no looking back and no self, you know, you know, you know, self. You're not inspecting your own, um, um, like, you know, morals and values, not growing. And obviously, if you read the book, it's a lot different. In the book, I, I get much more into the inner struggle and the things that were driving me. Um, to do what I did. And it's almost like there's two voices playing in my head. And I think one of the most, this is my opinion, the most profound things I say in the book is like I started to feel like I was an actor on a stage playing a role in, in my own life where I almost was doing what I thought people expected me to do. And it felt like it was almost like I was on a freight carrying out of control. Now, that's a great rationalization as well to say, oh, I'm really a good person. I was just sort of an actor on a stage, right? And I think it's part of my own rationalization to make sense of what happened to me. But here's the thing. I, I, I grew up in a really, really good family. Um, You know, a a family where, you know, breaking the law, getting in trouble um, was just not even a possibility. You know, my my mother, for example, is the oldest woman in New York State to pass the bar. She passed in her late 60s and won pro bono lawyer of the year when she was in her mid-70s. She was a CPA in the 50s going down to work in the madman days as a CPA, and she was blazing the shelf for women in, in the 50s. And my dad was a CPA's wild man in the movie, funny guy, but he was a CPA, the most ethical guy I ever met, never got a speeding ticket, right? And I was sent out in the world with those sort of values and morals. I'd seen that my brother's very successful as an attorney. And then I sort of took this left turn to Albuquerque, so to speak, and my life took this wild turn and it became one foot in front of the other and I, Went in this direction we all saw when it ended, and even before it ended, I would say when I got sober in 1997. That's you know, when you're when you're doing drugs, it quiets the critics. It's a lot of things that you know you don't. It's very easy not to to look and inside yourself and say what the hell is going on, and you know whether the drugs came first or the or the guilt came first and chicken and egg sort of thing. Who's to really say, but because it was kind of both things and a little bit of back pain that served as a great justification to keep doing drugs even after my back stopped hurting, right? It's very, it's very complicated addiction. And also I just liked it because drugs are fun. I mean, so there's all these different things feeding into that. But once I got sober, it became very easy for me to go back to being the person I was that my parents sent out into the world. like It wasn't like I had to change myself. It's more like I had to become the person I originally was and say, what the hell happened to me? And I think one of the funniest lines ever you know, in a private seminar I gave was a small meeting in Australia where the CEO of one of their um, big newspaper groups said, you know, Jordan, it's like you were kidnapped by aliens for 12 years and now you're back again. I wish that was the case. <laughs> it wasn't, but I, I would say it was very easy for me To go back into the world again after it was over and just be this really ethical person that, you know, I think I'm probably one of the most ethical businessmen I know in the world. I I almost err on the side of being, letting myself get taken advantage of because I know I'm really good at making money and I can afford to be that way. I know I can still monetize things without having to cut corners. Biggest mistake I made, Russell, was cutting corners. That was the big, that was the mistake I made.
0: Yeah, you had obviously like a rare ability to spot opportunity that was there in plain sight for anyone with the vision to observe it that's clear and the sort of the ferocious energy required to get any idea off the ground it takes you know there are so many obstacles anyone that's pursuing anything a career in art or creativity or a career in any genre or discipline there is resistance to success it feels like there's stuff that you have to overcome and requires a, a, a great deal of power deal of power. And I don't I like you, Jordan, I don't think that those energies are benign or malevolent in and of themselves they can be directed like you know you can take someone like you or indeed me and use the energy that we've got to create real positive things that have a positive impact on you know loads of people's lives or we can be very very selfish self-involved you know and like and i've had a go at both of those versions and do you sometimes still feel do you ever get the pang of like ah ah the craziness (laughs) the madness do you ever feel the call of the wild
2: I do. I mean, of course I, I do, but it doesn't, like, I, I think the call of the wild is not like, let me go out and just break the law and rip people off. Like the call of the wild <laughs> is not that. It, it's, it's not about like, that's almost a lazy version of success. In other words, it's more fun to say, imagine success is a game of some sort, right? And you know, money the, represents the scorecard. Are you winning? Or are you losing in the whole game of business in life, right? And, you know, to say that the one thing I would say that really drove me to, to come back from all that in jail was the faces of my children. Like I imagine, you know, that, that, that I didn't come back, the impact it would have on my kids and not being a role model to them and knowing that their dad could be rich, but do it right. And, I, and that was such a huge driver for me that there was like no way I was going to get in trouble again because that would be against my highest value is my family, my children and they're having their respect and love. Now they would always love me, but it's very different to respect someone, you know, and to like them then versus to love them. And I think that was the, one of the chief drivers for me making the comeback was my children. When I wrote the book and was in jail and felt like there was days I couldn't go on, I imagine not having them in my life anymore and the, and the negative impact it had. And that really allowed me to, to manifest that much energy to come back from such you know, a terrible spot.
0: Was that? Did you do your? Pr- what kind of prison did you? Was it that you were in? Was it high security, low security in England? There's yeah, an A, B, C category. What kind of? So prison it was. was it? it
2: was a minimum security prison. I was saying, well, you know, I wasn't like you know worried about. I know what like type of language you use here on the podcast, so you could always edit this. Whatever out you want. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I wasn't getting butt fucked by Bubba at night. It wasn't like so for you know, bar a shower, and bar soap in the shower. That wasn't the issue. But jail sucks, no matter how low security it is. And it's embarrassing, and you're surrounded by all the losers of life, and you're losing the game of life. And when you're there, the world goes on. And no matter how minimum security it might be, it was tennis courts there. You could pay someone to do your laundry and serve your coffee in the morning. But you know what? Jail sucks, and 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 there's no way around that. And you know, I had to have my have my visit, my kids come visit me in jail. And now again, you know, my bunkmate was Tommy Chong from Cheech and Chang by the way. No way. Cool. I swear to God, he was my bunk mate and he was there for selling bongs, not pot, bongs on the internet. And I was like, he got a year and a day. I'm like, fuck, if this guy got a year and a day, I should get a thousand years. Like, you know, the good news is he shouldn't have gotten anytime. So it's not a good analogy, but, but um, he was my bunk mate and he was the one that actually got me to write the book. So um, it was, you know, you, you make the best of where you are, but jail sucks. And, and there's no way around that you could you know try to say oh minimum security it was still jail
0: do you think there were ethical consequences to your you know, crimes let's call them that's where I guess how they're yeah. framed like do you think it hurt people, like were, were the kind of people who were investing in stock and, you know, I don't know enough about financial markets to know exactly how sort of inflating value and all that kind sure. of stuff, what, you know, what's going down. But yeah. do you think that people were actually hurt beyond financially? And were they people that could afford to be hurt? Was it like little old ladies or was it like kind of rich people or what?
2: It was the latter for sure. And interestingly, this cut, this, uh this uh, issue came up on, on my own podcast. I had the FBI agent who indicted me. He's a friend of mine. He's a great guy. Um, and you know it was always this weird narrative that that you know poor people had lost money. It just was false. It was completely false. We just didn't, in fact, the whole idea of Stratton and it was, you know, in the movie, by the way, it slipped through quickly where Lee goes, why, why can't we call rich people? Like the whole premise of Stratton was, wait a second, we started off calling average moms and dads, but it was very small and small investments. And then one day I had this idea. wait a second, why are we calling, you know, poor people? We should be calling the richest 1%. The problem was you couldn't get these kids to a high enough level of training sales wise and you know market wise to talk to these people so when i first tested the idea of calling the richest 1% people who could afford to lose, but also who could afford to invest a lot. I don't want to even say my my purposes were that noble. Yes, I was, I was clearly aware that it's much better that if I don't lose poor people money, right? As I could justify that, right? But the other side of that was also like to say, well, why, rob, why do people rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Well, why am I calling someone who barely can invest $50 if I can call a multi millionaire who can easily invest 100,000 and won't care? He'll laugh if it's missing because he's getting ripped off all over wall street it's like another of his eight accounts right so i were targeting specifically those people right and i invented a system of sales training that allowed these kids to close those deals those are the two one two punch that created stratton right and that system i created is still used all over the world by people ethically and it's an amazing system right when i what is it what what is the system Oh, it's, it's called the straight line system. It's very well known around the world. And it was the, the core of my comeback originally was the straight line system, which was teaching people how to, you know, average people with that are not natural born closers how to close an extremely high level. And I get probably 50 emails a day. You change do it my on life. Me. Do it on me. You like this? Huh? <laughs> well, yeah. yeah.
0: Can you do, do, uh, do the straight line system on me? Like, so as I understand it.
2: Do you understand the straight line at all? Are you aware of what it is or no? No, sir. Okay, great. So so the straight line basically is just, a, it's really a communication strategy that, and we call it goal-oriented communication. So it's very different for you and I to have a conversation, which is a dialogue back and forth. I'm not trying to influence you. I'm trying to explain things to you. I'm not trying to convince you to think a certain way as me. I'm just, it's a really natural two-way dialogue. It's very different than when you speak to someone, whether on the phone or in person or on Zoom, and you have an outcome in mind. You have a goal. You're trying to close them. You're trying to get them to think the same way you are right. So, in the terms of goal-oriented communication, you know what you have is you have this this open, and then you have a close, and the close represents the successful outcome of you getting the person to see things the way you do. That could be to buy a fifty-dollar item, it could be to win an argument, a negotiation, buy a new car, sign an insurance policy, vote for a certain president, have the jury acquit the the, the uh, your client. So it goes to everything in life, not just sales. It's these communication. So you know basically. I always say is that at the highest level, sales is really about the transfer of emotion. And the primary emotion that you're transferring is the emotion of certainty. That they must be certain that that, that when you think of certainty, what is it all that the product makes sense? So people buy products, goods and services to resolve pain points, to feel like they're back in control again, to fill core needs, sometimes secondary needs, but they have a reason why they buy. And when they say yes, it's because they're, absolutely certain that, yeah, this is the best solution to my pain or my situation, right? So we think of that. Okay, so imagine a continuum of certainty. One means they're uncertain. They, they think it's the biggest piece of shit in the world. 10 is a state of absolute certainty. Greatest product since sliced bread, right? So question, if you're trying to close someone on any product, good or service, where do you want them on the scale? At a one or a 10 when, they're, when you ask ten, for the ten, order? Ten. A, a ten. 10, right? So let's say you do that. Let's say you, you did a great job the way you presented your product. You just kicked ass. They're like, wow, this is the best product in the world. It's the best value proposition. It's great finding. Every, unbelievable. It looks great, smells great, feels great, right? Question, will they buy from you? Now, if I answer that question in a large group, I was, yeah, of course they'll buy. And the answer is, that's not true. The answer is maybe, as in maybe they will, maybe they won't. What if in the process of you making them certain, you did it in a way where they no longer trust you? or like you, or don't connect with you. Question, will you buy from someone you don't trust? The answer is no, unless you're absolutely positively desperate, right? But the answer is no, you won't. So it's not enough that they're certain about the product. They also need to be certain about you, the salesperson, that you're trustworthy, they connect with you, that you do the right thing by them, that you're ethical, that you're honest, that you have the best interest at heart. So that's the second element that must line up. So let's say in your presentation, you're very careful and you do that too. By the time they're done, they say you ask for the order for the first time. They say, wow, that's the greatest product in the world and just love it and the the sales, what a nice guy. What a, Russell's so ethical. What, he really took his time to answer my question. He seems to care about me. I'm just like Russell. Question, will they buy now? The answer still is maybe. Maybe they will, maybe they won't because what if they don't trust the company that stands behind the product? See, if any one of those three things are missing, people don't say, I don't trust you, Russell. I don't like you, Russell. I don't like your company. That's not what they'll say. You know what they'll say? They'll say, hey, sounds good, Russell. Let me think about it. Yeah, yeah, Russell, sounds great. Let me call, I'll call you back. I've got to talk to my wife. So what happens is all these common objections pop up as smoke screens for uncertainty. So, what happens is typically when a, when a salesperson gets hit with an objection, they'll try to overcome that objection. So, you say, I need to speak to my wife. I say, Russell, I understand you want to speak to your wife, but you know, I've been doing this for quite some time. You know and I know you really don't have to speak to your wife for a decision like this. She makes decisions every day without you. You make them without her. Let me ask you this, Russell. You know, so, let me just, so, Russell, why don't you do this? Just start right now. I want you to buy this a great deal and I try to close you again. Will you buy? Never. You know why? Because the objection for your wife was just a stall, a smoke screen for uncertainty. So you'll just, you'll say, yeah, yeah, it sounds good. Let me just, let me just uh, do some research and you'll switch to a new objection. You objection hop, right? This is what plays out in the world all day long in sales. So rather than that, if someone hits me with an objection, I actually, well, first I'll say, well, Russell, let me, I hear what you're saying, but let me ask you this. Does the product make sense to you? Do you like the product? I actually loop back and you'll say, yeah, it sounds pretty good. I'm like, ah, oh, it sounds pretty good. That's not a 10. I'll say, exactly, Russell is a great deal. In fact, let me say this. The true beauty is, and I'll resell you on the product and then resell you, tell you more about myself. There's a whole, it's an intricate system. But basically, what it does, what I just did is quickly unpack simply how natural-born salespeople operate without thinking about it. In other words, what I realized, there were certain people like myself as a natural-born closer, I was running these intricate loops and strategies without ever thinking about it because my brain was wired naturally for sales and for communication. I knew intuitively that if I say to someone, well, John, what, what's the worst that could possibly happen? That it's a very different thing than saying, John, what's the worst thing that can possibly happen? If I say to you, John, how are you doing today, John? It says, you know that I know that I know, you know, I don't give a fuck how you're doing today. It's a perfunctory greeting we use in communication. I don't care about you versus, hey, John, how are you doing today? You're like, whoa, he actually cares. If I say to you, hey, John, it's a Jordan Belfort calling from XYZ company. You're like, oh, fuck, another salesman call. How did he get my number? You're like, fuck, I can't believe this. How how do you let this guy, because you hear my voice. I say, hi, I'm Jordan Belfort, the declaration, calling from XYZ company in New York. You're like, oh, shit. And already you hate the guy on the phone versus me saying, hey, Russell, Jordan Belfort, Calling from XYZ company in New York. You're like, who, oh, what? And I phrase it as a question. Your brain goes into certain, do I know Jordan Belfort? Well, if my mother told me, I should. it's really rude to forget people's names. I met them since you're five years old. The programming takes hold. So there's all this shit, Russell, that happens like natural born closers automatically. The way their brain is wired, they, they use tonality, body language and words to convey very powerful messages that move people both logically and emotionally and end up at this outcome of getting certainty for all three things. Now, what I realized is that you could actually, in this one moment in time, I realized what was happening, what I could close and my kids couldn't and I, it's just like this moment of, I had a, a, I think of where I was tapping into the source where I felt like I had all of a sudden information that wasn't even my own. And in this one evening, I invented this new way of teaching salespeople by drawing a straight line and saying, this is the open, this is the close. And using that as a basis for the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. You'd love them to stay on the straight line, but typically they go off the straight line, off into Pluto or your anus, which is not a great place to be in sales for most people, at least I don't judge, right? But the point is, is that it's the idea of number one, you must take control of the sale. How do you do that? Million dollar question. Well, number one, you know, people, I, mean, I don't know if you want me to keep, I could go on and on for hours and hours about this stuff. So it's great. But, you know, but that's the, that's the essence of it. It's great. It's great, it's brilliant, it's brilliant. I understand,
0: I understand, man. Like I, I hear the sort of the neurolinguistic programming component from it. Like There's stuff that I identify with. I'm a, like a entertainer, you know. So like I have to Very persuade much. large groups of people to come with me on a journey. I have to be aware if if what I'm saying is uh, objectionable, unpleasant, or unsavoury. And it, like while you're saying this, it seems to me that you could, as you said in your prep uh, preposition, like that you could mobilise this technology towards anything, as you said, to a political candidate, to ideologies, anything for good or if evil, malevolent for good or benevolent, or evil.
2: like any powerful yeah. weapon, benevolent or benevolent.
0: One of the things like this is a more parochial use of these ideas, is that if I'm in conversation with people like in a a cab or a street or whatever... I try not to operate within the parameters of prescribed conversation I don't want to just operate on that like that that sort of droning white noise mm-hmm. of communication sure. how do you get beyond the edifices that people put out in front of you sales where there is a like you know but if I'm chatting to someone in a cab I don't have no objective beyond pass the time and you know if I'm in the right frame of mind make this person feel happy for the short mm-hmm. period of time sure. that I'm with them you know but like if like you have a clear objective that isn't in alignment say with a a higher set of values if it is about a commercial exchange as opposed to I truly believe this ideology could change the world Mm -hmm. then you know you find yourself sometimes at odds particularly the way those those are some of the best scenes I think in the movie is when you see your character like you know doing mime in the fucking them and uh, kind of and coming up with that stuff and the way that the crowds gathered around you when you see someone in their genius always beautiful always beautiful to see someone doing their thing that's coming from as you sort of characterized it from the source something that can be that sort of beyond ordinary human understanding and communication the creation of community what an incredible ability that is the how nuanced that is the reading of emotion the uh, unwillingness to accept cliche and trite exchange mm-hmm. the use of tonal tonal variety in language man I love that stuff I love it and like I I feel like it's something that could be applied towards like this is a sort of a pivotal and interesting time uh, politically and ideologically in the world. Which ideas succeed? For me, we live in a culture where the ideas that succeed are the ideas that have the most power behind them and by that I mean political and economic power. You know, if Facebook and Big Tech want an idea to succeed, if the Democratic Party want an idea to succeed, that idea has a good chance of succeeding. Ideas that might be better for ordinary people sharing uh, the decentralized power, true democracy. These ideas are stamped out in the crib, you know, because they don't have money power behind them no one's running experiments to say this particular Pfizer product or this particular Coca-Cola product is shit no one's paying right. for that lab right. you know like that yeah. so even on the level of objective data it ain't coming out so like you know so persuasion and presentation and framing that is reality so Absolutely. like um, yeah, man. So, like, another thing I wanted to check with you, Jordan. You know, like, it's like it sounds to me, like, it, it would you say you often use the analogy of like it's like a game. It's like a game, and this is a sort of a spiritual idea as well as a relatively modern one. Like, is is it a, is this a simulation that we're in? And like in in religious scripture, it's an illusion. It's a veil. None of this stuff is real. In this game, do you think that what you did was wrong? Or that, in a sense, it was just a slip-up around the rules. And as a sort of a follow-up question of that, because I know you're a man who can chat, Like, do you think that there's people in that world, i.e. 2008 and uh, all of that bundling derivative gear that went down, that are doing far more criminal stuff, but have just got a better hook-up when it comes to the layout of those rules and better relationships when it comes to being persecuted for any breach of those rules and the ability to change those rules if it fucking suits them?
2: It's very very difficult for me to say that, yeah, you know, people did a lot worse to me and do a lot worse to me every day because it senses that I'm minimizing what I did wrong or the two rights, you know, don't make a wrong or whichever way it would flow. Listen, when I first... Got out of jail and was dealing with my comeback and coming to terms with what had happened. Yeah, I, I, I felt I wouldn't. It's not guilt. It's more like remorse. I think is a much healthier emotion. Is the active form of like just going out there and doing good works. Right. A lot of things happened along the way. Like number one, finding out that people that I that that had lost money. Were never be, weren't being paid back like the money I was paying was not going to anybody that they couldn't find any more investors so very early on there was they distributed the initial like 20 million or something and they ran out of people to, to give money to and they had to turn return five hundred thousand to the treasury because they couldn't find any more investors. And because they didn't know what was really lost. It was a guess that I did hundred million or well, whatever. Right? you know, they couldn't find any more investors. Now, I didn't find out about that till 2011. I was giving millions of more and, and I still pay a little bit each month, right? So but no one's getting the money. So it's a little frustrating that the investors, you know, whoever wanted money got it back. They were mostly rich people didn't give a shit. They wrote it off in their taxes. It would have been a bigger hassle to try to go in and claim a few dollars. So, you know, so... I, it's a great rationalization too. I, sh- I just don't want you to think I'm minimizing or anyone listening because I'm not. Like I, you, you, It's more complex. You could be, say, yeah, what I did was wrong, but on the degree of wrong compared to 2008, forget about it. I was a, a, a saint compared. I didn't bankrupt Iceland and Greece and bring the entire <laughs> world financial system to its knees and then ask the taxpayers to bail me out and kept my job. And I think that's why, um, for the most part, I think I'm pretty well loved by most people in the world that, that understand that like, I have so many fans because they get that. They they realize that the people that really did stuff never went to jail, never paid for their crimes, and they're still in power, right? And that doesn't bother me. I think it's just a fact that most rational people know at this point that, you know, you look at the end of the movie, The Big Short, which I loved, and this is like false endings, they, and then all the bad guys, they all went to jail. Ha ha, just kidding. No one went to jail. And they have one poor schnook who like did nothing that served as the fall guy that did a year and like he barely he was like a low-level guy and everybody else got off, right? And people, we laugh, but inside we know it's not right. And it bothers people. And Now you see all these things pop up as a result. Well, it started with like, you know, Occupy Wall Street, which was kind of like not, didn't really go anywhere. But then you see like even the Trump revolution, what happened with Trump and this sort of movement towards sort of, you know, the, the individualized states versus the world, you know, this globalism versus, you know, nation states being individual, right? So a huge struggle on that level. I think a lot of it comes from the seething anger, things like Bitcoin, decentralized finance is like this need for people, like people know there's something rotten at the core So they they just, they're yearning for something else, an alternative, but the system will always try to protect itself as much as it can. And, you know, it's, and change is never quickly. It's it's, when it happens at the end, it's it's hard and fast, but there's these years and years and years of this sort of slow slogging towards an idea while it gathers momentum. When it finally reaches its pinnacle, it can happen in an instant, but the point to get to that can be very long and drawn out sometimes. So I think that right now, yes, I think that there's people, every day doing far worse than I ever did. By a long shot, it doesn't make what I did right. It's just an interesting point to note that, you know, why is justice seemingly not meted out fairly? Why do bad people get away with doing things and never seem to pay the price for that? You know, what is that about? You know, and is it about just people in power letting, giving their friends a pass? I think it's more complex than that. I, I really do. I think it's it's really gets down to very basic things like, the cops are always outwitted by the, to some extent by the criminals. Like you get to a certain point. Like it's like cops, here's, here's another analogy. And you know, I love my analogies, right? Is that policemen can be wrong a thousand times. They have to be right once. I don't know if all the people are, are going to get away with it in the end. You still might see people paying, you know, the wheels of justice grind slow. Like right now in the world of of, of crypto, there's just massive fraud every day on an unprecedented level, like I'm, I can't believe this is happening. Like every day, there's massive manipulation, pump and dump schemes to make my stuff look like it was child's play every day. And yet nothing seems to be happening. But you never know because there's a, you know, as they say, the stash limitations, well, it's five years, so who knows what's going to happen
0: with these like with the former where it's like you know blue chip companies wall street revolving door between you know washington and wall street that stuff seems like there's so much systemic investment so much Cultural and collateral it wedded in those systems that even when something like 2008 happens, which to me as a layperson it seemed like they kind of knew that it was going to happen and that it would the consequences would be so seismic that it would be impossible for the government not to bail them out because of yes. the scale of it and and the fact that nobody was persecuted or prosecuted rather or as a result of that suggests that that's a, a theory that somewhat
2: holds water right is that
0: possible yeah but yeah it's it's certainly like it was obviously
2: you know the government and I think they made the right decision at the time that you know, I think they didn't want you to stick your credit card in the ATM machine and nothing came out. And I think they were very close to that with AIG and Goldman Sachs and, and after Lehman crash. There was this moment when it could have happened and I think they did the right thing. That being said, there was no reason why the people that were behind, like I'll tell you who the most culpable people of all were, the rating agencies. They were the ones that allowed this to happen. They were supposed to be the bastion of, of you know of 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 integrity like this is rated a certain thing this is AAA this is a piece of shit the whole thing is facilitated by the rating agencies and their desire to earn fees and to take something that was truly a piece of shit and stamp it AAA and that's what allowed everything else to happen without that one piece of the puzzle it could have never happened. Now you could say the same thing without the bankers to create the proxy with them, but I'll tell you, those rating agencies, like they're supposed to be, like the whole purpose of a rate, like, okay, Wall Street firms, they broke the law and screwed people. Like, well, what kind of surprise is that? That's what Wall Street firms do. Isn't that what they're supposed to do? Like no one's, I been shocked to find out that Goldman Sachs was like going wild. Ah, that's Goldman Sachs, eh? But the rating agencies? What well, isn't their whole soul focused to be like the empirical arbiters of good and bad? And with with you know, sophisticated, you know, not a lettering H play minus and like with these form. No, they were completely on the take. All right. And they no matter how bad something was, it could have been the biggest piece of shit in the world, and they'd say, "Oh well, it's a hundred pieces of shit wrapped together equals greatness." No, a hundred pieces of shit together is a giant lump of shit, right? And that's really what happened. They stamped those lumps of shit triple A, and then the you know the brokerage firms, the bankers, wrapped those up into these instruments, and then you know people that couldn't really afford to buy homes and knew they could never pay them back said, "Well, why shouldn't I take the home? Why not?" You're right. Why wouldn't you take the home, right? And the mortgage brokers showed them how to line their applications. The underwriters were told to look the other way because they were making money. And then who got fucked? Iceland, Greece. (laughs) They sold this shit around the world and literally destroyed. I was in Iceland speaking right after this happened. I got to tell you, it was an ugly, ugly thing. It was really, really bad. There was real consequences to that, to countries that still have not recovered to this very day.
0: Yeah, the impact of it, financially, culturally and as you said at the beginning, Jordan even politically are still being felt that it has created isolationism sort of like nationalism suspicion and cynicism and in a sense quite rightly but like I once listened to Steve Bannon talk at Oxford, just on the internet. I didn't go. Like, and and like, and he was when he was describing that quantitative easing process and the banker bailout, and that this is happening under Obama. That you know, the whole idea that these are sort of this is the persuasion politically that are meant to be for the population and for ordinary people, and to show and and demonstrating the degree to which they are bed with big business corporations, the financial world. In a sense, what that does is it. It, as you say, it makes ordinary people recognize you cannot trust that world. You cannot cut them off, cut them off. You can't have any trust in them. Now, like it seems to me that you are a person that was able to enter into that world and at your own level to an extraordinary degree, looking at the amount of excess and wealth and opportunity and power that you created from scratch. Really, really incredible, and by your own uh, acknowledgement, without minimizing what you did and not seeking in any way to, you know, you've been really clear about that. Like, but it's nothing compared to what's (laughs) institutionalized, nothing, Nothing. it's just sort of irrelevant. And what could ever, like, I was just wondering for a moment there, what would have happened, like, I understand what you're saying, like, you know, we go to the ATM and no cash will come out. If, like, uh, AIG was allowed to fold and Goldman if all those things crash, it's a sort of de facto revolution, right? It's like, so, like, the, it, well, the system would have collapsed. Is that
2: right? I think it would have been very similar to what happened in the 30s. I think there would have been a, a massive depression, economic contraction, huge unemployment. Um, and I think then the U.S. would have recovered. I don't think it would be the end of the world as we know it because I think that, you know, um, the Constitution, as flawed as it can be, is still pretty strong here. And I think there's still an underlying belief that, you know, the U.S. has this citizens feel like it's almost this destiny to be the, the greatest country in the world. It's taught to us now, not so much in school. when I was in school that we're the greatest country in the world, and um, I think it would have come back and bounced back, but there would have been massive... Massive amount of pain along the way. Now, I think what's really happened though is that pain has simply been deferred. It's been transferred onto our children and our grandchildren because you know there is this this sort of entity, this this gigantic octopus that sits on top of the economy. It's not Goldman Sachs, it's the Federal Reserve that literally has the ability to just print as much money as they want and they basically debased the financial system's fiat currency and they, you know, printed trillions upon trillions of trillions of dollars. They call it quantitative easing. So, they put fancy labels on it to show there's some science and mathematics behind it and it's a good thing. Um, but they kicked the can down the road. They've been kicking the can down the road since 1987, since the stock market crashed in 87. And then they really been kicking the can down the road since George Bush the older one got on the the TV set in ninety in two thousand and one after September and said, "If you don't keep shopping, the terrorists win." And like there was just this this effort to keep things going when like you know, the dot com bubble crashed, the terrorists attacked and brought down the towers. People were scared to go out and shop, and yet somehow. How did we end up going right back up again? No no matter what happens, the government is, and this is, you know, either my hat's off to them or they're the biggest criminals and it's going to all come crashing down. I think the jury's still out. I think ultimately they're going to be there's going to be health to pay, but they've managed to keep kicking the can down the road to interrupt the normal cycles of boom and bust that have been characterizing capitalist economies since way back when. Since, you know, I saw a a, a doc recently back in Rome, it happened, literally that far back when they start debasing the currency and it just never ends well. You saw it in exaggerated forms in Nazi Germany or pre-Nazi Germany in the 20s that led to Nazi Germany. You saw it happen in places like uh, Zimbabwe where they have $1 trillion notes that you can't buy a loaf of bread with right that's typically what happens when you just print amazing amounts of money the dollar has this weird ability because it's a reserve currency for the world that we get away with shit that no one else can get away with and also no one really knows because the fed who knows what's really going on at the federal reserve so i i think there's going to be at some point in time massive hell to pay like with this odd budget deficit like what's that about like, you're just going to run this deficit it's going to grow and grow and grow until it's literally going to be bigger than any metric you can think of because there's no way to get rid of it. Unless, of course, Satoshi Nakamoto was actually the U.S. government. It's all long game. They own all the Bitcoin actually. And they, I mean, who knows what's really going on? You know, nothing would shock me at this point. You know what I'm saying? But, you know, they've been kicking the can down the road for since two, really since 2001 in a big way. And at some point, something's got to give
0: so it's ultimately an artificially sustained system so when there's that kind of pragmatic discourse around free market capitalism it's the best of all possible alternatives no other system would work you can't decentralize finance you can't have people trading you can't have alternative financial systems the the what's being held up as the kind of great monolith and the sort of to which there is no real alternative is a kind of illusion that's held in place by as you, you, you used the phrase earlier, sort of various forms of smoke and mirrors and sort of skullduggery, really. It's, it's sooner or later, the reality will have to be addressed, right?
2: I don't think that's true, though. See, I, I don't think that this centralized system is the is the only way. And in fact, we're proving right now through through cryptocurrency, and we're really bugs me about these shit coins out there that are being dumped on people every single day. I get five offers a day to represent a shit coin, shit coin of the day. It's like literally they'll pay me a few million bucks to go say buy this shit coin, right? That's very different than Bitcoin, Ethereum, or Matic. Some of these other crypto blockchains that really have an ability to, to make dramatic change for the better, or maybe not but at least they have a chance and there really is some major utility behind them to change the world and make the world a more you know um, you know economically fair place or balanced place and you know to have under you know serve populations have access to decentralized finance and banking now there's a lot of pain and a lot of shit that's going to happen before it really takes hold De- defi in a, in a global way that is regulated And that doesn't rip people off the line because the bad actors always get in the beginning and try to, when you have a dark market like that, there's a lot of people that want to make a quick buck and that's what you have happening right now with crypto. So let me be clear. Like when I'm talking about crypto scams, I don't mean Ethereum or Bitcoin. I actually am a bull now on this stuff for the long term because I think there's utility and it makes the world better. I don't think this is a situation like it's Betamax or VHS, meaning there's these two systems. There's centralized banking and decentralized finance. At the end of the day, DeFi is going to win and there'll be no more central banks. I think that's nonsense. I think it's a lot more like Android and iPhone. You're going to have these two systems that both run side by side and you'll probably have a lot more people use DeFi because it's just, it's decentralized. Android like, like, uh, Android's the perfect analogy because like, you know, it's... It's decentralized, it's only software run by all different companies around the world use the Android software, right? And they're all different manufacturers versus iPhones, a closed system. So iPhone represents centralized banking. It's the higher class, so to speak, more expensive, but you know, all these things and protections and control in place versus the wild west of the Android technology. At the end of the day, I think that's what's going to happen. You'll have probably 70% of the world in DeFi, 30% using centralized institutions. And you're going to have these very, very well-regulated on-ramps and off off ramps between the two and I hope that's the way the world ends up because it'll be a much better world when there'll be two alternatives that run side by side I think it's going to be a a, a a likely outcome but I do not think that DeFi replaces central banking and I don't think central banking wipes out DeFi
0: could DeFi lead to communities entire communities that are separate from centralized authority using these kind of currencies could you say we don't want nothing to do with you we're not paying tax we're not paying mortgages we're our own thing we operate on this leave us alone is that no, plausible I,
2: strong, I, I never say no it's stupid right but strongly strongly doubt that i think that what you're going to find is that the governments i listen the reason i was a bear in Bitcoin, I, I I thought Bitcoin was going to zero. In 2017, I publicly stated when it was at 20,000, this is a piece of shit, it's going to zero. I said, I love blockchain tech. I always love blockchain technology, but I was very much against this inflationary thing I saw happening with Bitcoin. They were driving up the price. It was a massive bubble. And I was right that, you know, I said, sell, sell, sell. And it went down to like back to 2000, but I was wrong also. Cause I said, it's never coming back. So I was right. And I was wrong. And I'm, I love to admit that I'm wrong. And you know, and, and you can change your, like, why do you change your mind? People change their mind all the time based on new information. Right? So back in the day when I saw the Bitcoin of 2017, yeah, scam pumping. And they were, they were pumping it up. It was being manipulated up to that level of 20,000. But because at the heart of Bitcoin is something really great there. Something really valuable there. It solves a real fucking problem. Right? It came back and thankfully it did and it came back from the doldrums when and also remember you know back then part of the reason it dropped was cuz it was regulation from China coming in now they're re-regulating it again even more stringently so it came back and now i think the 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 bitcoin/ethereum of 2021 is very different than 2016-2017 it's far more widely held it has far more utility and i believe we're getting to this moment this this tipping point here which I want to be a part of, which is actually making it so you can use these things for legitimate commerce and not just speculation. So right now it's being used primarily for speculation and a store of value, but it's not a particularly great store of value because it's so volatile, but certainly used for speculation. And there are some really powerful things built into Bitcoin that, make it that way, like certain types of scarcity, the way it's, it's very, it's brilliant. Whoever did this, it's probably the US who did it. No Surprise, it's like, you know, when the when the police want to catch all the crooks, they form a company and they, with a fence, and it turns out it's, the, it's like a bad movie, right? Guess what? It's the NSA that invented Bitcoin. And scam, we got you all now. Oh, China, here, we're paying off our deficit. Here's 50 Bitcoin, it's now a million. <laughs> you know, I'm probably getting there, but who knows what's going on, right? But the point is, is that I believe that Bitcoin is crossed over, where it's widely held enough, there's enough computer nodes around the world. I don't think it's going away. And I think that is real use for it. And I sincerely hope that the shit coins of the day start getting the people deserve what they get. And I don't, I don't I have to say see everyone go to jail, but it's gotta stop. Because they just it's just designed to separate people from their money. Let me tell you what's happening, Russell. There's people sitting in the in their rooms in their little offices every day. How do we create the latest shit coin of the day? and pump it and dump it on unwitting investors. The conversations, if you go into certain rooms in Telegram, it's that brazen. Like they're saying, I'm like, I'm like, guys, please, shh. You don't fucking write this shit down. You can't say, it. it's called a paper fucking trail, right? You know, at least when I was doing it at Stratton, I'd be like in a quiet room and check for bugs. And then we'd have that terrible conversation. I'm like, okay. We're gonna buy it back at five, and then we'll sell it at nine. Like, that's like the most illegal conversation you could have. And those things were done like with you know with security checks for bugs, and and once every two months. Like and everything else was legit at Stratton. This one, this is just they're out there talking about pump and dumps as if they're legal. It's crazy, Russell. It's absolutely crazy. And the sad thing is, is I was in Italy two weeks ago in Venice giving a speech. Twenty-five people, relatively wealthy people, great people, and there was one person, man's daughter, was there. And I said that she was twenty-one. I said, "Who's bought Bitcoin?" Or any crypto? And ten raised their hand. One was this girl. I said, "What did you buy?" She goes, "Dogecoin." I said, "Why'd you buy it?" She goes, "Elon Musk said so." I said, "What happened?" She said, I lost all my money, all my life savings. Now, I'm not here to condemn Elon Musk. I actually like Elon Musk. I'm a fan of his. I don't know if he realizes though that like, you know, there's there's a huge danger here. And you know, when you're out there with that much power in the marketplace, you know, he says things and I'm sure he doesn't have evil intentions. I think he's a good guy. I always thought he was, but like there's real damage happening from these sort of very speculative coins. And it's always the littlest, the smallest person that ends up getting screwed in the end. The sophisticated people, they always get out and they make money. That's the, the problem because the crypto at its heart is great. It's amazing. It can free the world from a lot of shit, I believe. So You know that's the story.
0: That's the problem that it could solve. It could free the world from a lot of shit because it's a parallel economy that could be to some degree untethered from some of the centralized problems that you've described
2: at length. I I believe that. And I believe there's going to be a lot of pain between now and then. And I believe governments are going to try their best to stamp it out as much as they can at this point. The genie's kind of out of the bottle. I think it's very easy for authoritarian countries like China to say, no more. We don't like it. And they're doing that. And they realize, oh, you know, what? enough is enough. We're going to launch our own digitized one, which is the scariest thing in the world, by the way. And I have great respect for the Chinese because they're fucking brilliant, by the way. I mean, they really got this shit down. It's like capitalism with no human rights and no, wow. And no no one to say, what an unbelievable um, way to make money. Like, these, that's why they're doing so well. It's like pure unbridled capitalism. And like, they want to, they need a power for a damn. I'll just, uh, the village, get the fuck out. <laughs> We're bull-
0: bull- 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 <laughs> I will give you some
2: money to go resell no lawsuit for 10 years in the Supreme Court about rights and eminent domains like, the fuck get the fuck out you know what I'm saying and they have this thing now called the social credit score which you probably know about just imagine the intersection of a crucial social credit score with programmable digitized one holy fuck I mean all of a sudden like you don't say something right your, your bank account goes like down like 5% it's like a bad Orwellian movie seriously like what, what could happen here with this and it represents the, almost the mirror of what you know, Bitcoin, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto was trying to, isn't life always like that? though? There's always like the mirror. It's always like, if there's something good, there's always the evil counterpart that runs concurrent. It's almost human nature and the way life is, there's a yin, there's going to be a yang, you know?
0: You find that in yourself still, do you find that there are still these competing energies? Do you find along with your idealism and the part of you that wants to f- create opportunities for other people that wants to find, you know, you clearly got a little bit of a Robin Hood instinct in there somewhere, even though that word's been tainted by recent events. You know, like that, the, do you have that still? And is there still the part of you in you that is sort of somewhat uh, rapacious and appetite led?
2: In the, in the original Forbes article that was written, that it was true, there was a Forbes article written in the, for the movie, I mean, that, in that scene where she comes in, I get the Wolf of Wall it was, it was an article written right in there. The famous quote is like some twisted version of Robin Hood who takes from the rich and gives to himself and his merry band of brokers. Like you know, it was like I well, was pretty clever, I guess. Right, you can giggle at it, right? You know, she was giving me a, a jab, but you know, I, I I think that you know, I think that there is a a light at the end of the tunnel. I really believe that. With I think that there's a way for this to really with decentralized finance to really go well. That, I think I kind of might have lost your question in the way I was in thinking a way, I was about the Robiter these things,
0: thing. Yeah, I was saying that are these still are these instincts still competing in you in a good wolf, bad wolf way, mm. But which is, you know, pretty apposite. But I was thinking, now I'm thinking more. Do Knowing that how much power is wrapped up in the preservation of these systems, knowing that, you know, something as effective as the uh, sort of the cryptocurrencies that you say are legit, the ones that are above the shit coin, lower league stuff, do you think... That there is any way that ordinary people operating together can change the balance of power from the sort of the the estates of centralized uh, uh, corporate power and governmental power. Do you think there is ever a chance for through, you know, even through these kind of financial means that you've helped us to understand better? a way of leveling the score a little bit so ordinary people who are looking to invest in whether it's you know bitcoin in any variety or any derivative thereof or you know imitation thereof or conventional stocks and shares You know, that that impulse that's behind that, an impulse that you clearly read and understand well because you're able to recognise that when they're saying they're talking to the wife, that ain't what they mean really. You sort of—you seem to be able to read what people's intention is, what it is within them. And what you know and I know that what people in a sense want is to be kind of free, to be able to live their lives free from like, you know, whether the octopus is the Federal Reserve or power structures more broadly bearing down on us, preventing us from being who we are, that the game is rigged against ordinary folk. Do you think that these powers can ever be challenged or do you think
2: they've got the game sewn up? So now you're at the most profound thing of all. You just hit on something, I think, you know, inadvertently and inadvertently, a combination of the two. Why? Like, why is this, you know, why is crypto so popular it's trade. Why would people buy shit coins? Why are people so into cryptocurrency? Why do influencers and all the people that are coming up, the younger people, why does they, they the young people, they love this shit? Let me tell you why. There's a reason why it's very profound, Russell. And I think this will clarify a lot of things for your listeners. You say, why are people like so much into whether it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, or uh, or Matic, or whatever, and there's a lot of good coins as well. So I don't want to, it's only not, oh, there's a few other good ones as well. And then for every good one, there's a hundred terrible ones, right? But here's what's happening. The reason the younger generation loves this stuff is because it is the great equalizer into itself as an investment When you buy a stock, when you try to invest in stocks or the stock market or oil or anything that is dominated by Wall Street that has fundamentals involved, meaning you're actually having very well-educated school people that are using 70 years of knowledge and research and statistics to look at companies, analyze them on based on Proven fundamentals, earnings, assets, cash flow, um, debt to equity, or things that that younger people, except if you're a major in economics, would understand. No one understands that stuff. So that gives Wall Street a huge edge in these investments because they are using knowledge of like, is it a good, because in Wall Street, is it a good company? Is it a bad company? Well, that, having that knowledge, even a slight bit, gives you an incredible edge. It's Warren Buffett. That's the perfect per example is Warren Buffett, long-term investor picking winners from losers based on real financial information. And at some level, that trickles all the way down to these traders on Wall Street who were trading with computer algorithms that the, the, the last trade by the microsecond, if you could beat it out by 0. 0.018 milliseconds. You could make money like that. But it's all based on this sort of knowing that system. And then you have crypto where there are no fundamentals. There's zero, there's nothing there but air. All it is is an algorithm, a pure algorithm says, here's the amount of coins we have. Here's how often they get printed. It takes away all the knowledge. You don't have to know anything. All that matters is this. Who's the most popular girl in school this week? If you know who the most popular girl in school is, guess what? You can make a fortune in crypto because there are no fundamentals. It's who's the most popular, who's everyone, because whatever. it's all supply and demand. So it allows influencers who are the most popular girls in school, so to speak. It gives them a huge edge in making money because they are the in crowd that is able to manipulate this stuff because they have, they know who the cutest girl in school is this week. And it changes from week to week or month. Elon is the, who's the cutest girl? Elon's the most beautiful girl of all. Elon says it's this, it it automatically goes up. So if you go to traditional investments, there's all this knowledge and information that Wall Street's accumulated over generations. They have a huge edge. They lose that edge with crypto because it's only about, Who's buying what? There are no fundamentals. So it makes it a more egalitarian system. You could actually invest on a more level playing field because it's only about who's buying it, who's selling it. There are no fundamentals. So it allows people with no investment ability, no knowledge of how companies and business works to go in and make money trading crypto because it's only about technicals. How many people are buying it? How many are selling it? Is it the top or the bottom? That's it. That's why people love investing in crypto.
0: That's cool. That's a cool breakdown. A few other things, right? Um, like, I was ch- chatting to a, one of my mates the other day who works in, you know, a Trader. He was talking about, like, how, like, with these CBD companies and all that, like, if there's a sort of a celebrity endorsement, there can be huge fluctuations, like, real early on. And then on the other side of that, mate, like you um, might not be following the Euros being American and all, but there's a sort of a European soccer tournament at the moment. And Cristiano Ronaldo, the one of the world's best players, like removed Coke, like when he did a press conference, there was bottles of Coke here like this on his I table. Saw that. For his I saw I just saw yeah. that. And four billion dropped off. What, do you, what does that tell us about the world of finance? The idea that endorsements uh, can have such a profound and real effect. What does that tell us about the nature of that reality?
2: Well, I think that, you know, there's a great scene in the movie, Jerry Maguire, which I'm sure you've seen. And it's in the early part of the movie where he's talking about his career as a sports agent. And it all comes to, to a head early on where some kid goes up to a professional basketball player and goes, oh, I can't sign that card. I only sign tops cards, right? Because like, that's his brand. That's the reality of, of capitalism. And it's like, you know, and it's how companies like, you know, whether it's a Facebook or how these companies monetize you know what, you know, endorsements So like an athlete might only get paid X dollars for being on the field, but he's building his personal brand and he's endorsing. Now so like anything else, there's a great side of that, a positive side of that. And there's a really negative side of that. Like the other, I don't want to name names here, but there's a coin out there right now that's being endorsed by all the top influencers in the world right now all of them, like major influencers. And they're out there publicly saying, this is the new greatest coin, this and that, right? And I'm shocked that these people would do that. They're And they're really rich. The people endorsing it are richer than me. And they're endorsing this without any understanding that it's going to go to zero. It's, a, it's like just another one of these things. They're getting paid massive amounts of money. They came to me yesterday and asked me to endorse it. And I said, no, I won't. I mean, I'm not going to endorse it. I said, I, I, a, I just don't know enough about it. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad. But I think in that case, like for me, like as a financial person, I'm expect. Like it's one thing if you're like you're a woman and you're known for beauty and stuff. Yeah, I guess if you endorse a coin, no one expects you to know any better. So I, I guess that person would be very careful about endorsing lipstick but maybe not a crypto coin. For me, a coin represents I should know better than not to endorse that, right? But everything right now, Russell, is about this endorsing and celebrity and, and social, you know, who's got the most followers and who can reach those followers. And it's powerful stuff. I don't think it's going away. I think it's an integral part of, of economies and there's nothing wrong with it, but there should be I mean, sh- again, sh- I hate regulations because like they always, you know, the more regulations you put on stuff, typically just the more warped it gets. It always, the people want to scam will find a way to scam anyway. And they usually just serve to bu- create an even larger bureaucracy in the end of this. It's very It's a double-edged sword, but one would think the world would be better served if like there was some sort of rule that you can't endorse things that you know suck. <laughs> like and you have to really actually believe in the things that you endorse, you know, and then I think the world would be a lot better and safer. It's not like that now. You can just endorse anything you want seemingly with impunity, even if it's a complete and utter scam. And that's the that's the problem because there's nothing wrong. An athlete loves a product. Like, okay, like Nike, for example. Like, okay, so they have like, you know, Nike is a great product. They make good stuff, right? They have these top athletes that use Nike. There's nothing wrong with that. That to me makes it's congruent. It makes sense. And unless Nike is, I mean, you could say they're using children in factories. That's that's getting too deep into the rabbit hole for me. But I'm saying generally speaking here, you know, they're giving value. I, I love this thing because I don't agree with all their advertising. Sometimes it bothers me, but good product makes sense. Yeah, I want to see what Tiger Woods is doing or Roger Federer or Michael Jordan or LeBron James, right? That's smart marketing. But then there's the other side of it, which is, you know, you know, and I'm keep using shitcoin.com, but any product, shitproduct.com is using a celebrity to separate people from their money because a celebrity needs to make extra money. That's the evil side.
0: And what about though, when a product like a Coke, you know, sort of Nike, I I get it. Like, you know, I'm wearing Nike shorts right now. Like, but like say Coca-Cola, like it's, um, you know, it's not good for you. It's not good for your teeth. It's not, you know, like this product is a a (laughs) fabrication. It's (laughs) that's the stuff Jordan. (laughs) <laughs> it's like it's held together by faith it's the idea that you know coca-cola has managed to ally itself with the idea of youth and sexuality and vigor and power and joy through marketing and then like you know when a significant figure criticizes coke or disavows coke even through a gesture it has an impact on it i suppose what i'm saying is is that there's in the world of finance whether it's cryptocurrency or more conventional financial markets so much it's not like We're making this product. It's valuable. Would you like to invest? I mean, the whole it's like a mad game that's based on belief and faith and. You know, like that. When you did your breakdown of your straight line system, there is essentially—I uh, I don't mean this is criticism, but I think it's brilliant what you did. Brilliant. I, I love that shit. But like, it's a, in a sense, it's implanting mean, realities in people's consciousness. And there's a difference doing it individually, you know, on a scale. Hustlers breaking out of their normal life to earn a few quid—we're all in. You know, we're all in the game. But when that's happening at an institutional level, giant corporations, Facebook, the big tech companies pushing you, manipulating consciousness, control it, You know, when actually often, whether it's, the you know, just a sugary brown drink or a company that's just interested in selling you bespoke marketing, what do you think about the morals and ethics behind that and these kind of straight line systems being played out at scale in that manner?
2: Yeah. Well, certainly the straight line is is very much like Madison Avenue on steroids. It's the same thing. It's 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 an oral version of what they do with a one-sided sale, which is a commercial or an ad where they're just talking to you subliminally. They're doing it often, subliminally often, and sometimes, you know, above board to your face. I think far worse to me is when corporations try to put other messages of morality into their products. Like this whole woke community, I think it's just fucking nonsense. And I'm the most liberal person you'll ever meet socially. And, I, and there's no more liberal person. I'm shock you that I don't care who fucks who and what, God, God bless, whatever you fucking want in your life, whatever makes you happy, I want you to be happy, right? You know and say i you know. It's, it's like, I'm really. I, I grew up like that. My family, you know, it's like ne- nothing, I don't care what the color of you is. I, too, I'm prejudiced against two groups. Lazy people and stupid people. Other than that, I love everybody equally, okay? Those are my two prejudices, lazy and stupid, all right? I have no no time for those people. Everyone else, great. But when I watch a commercial like by Gillette and they're trying to, instead of selling me a razor, they're trying to sell me some woke attitude about bullying in schools. And I hate bullying. I think it's the worst thing in the fucking world. I think the bully kids is terrible, all right? And we were all bullied. Everyone was bullied at one point in their life. All right, but like, I don't want to be moralized to by Facebook. I don't think they should be the arbiters of what is right and wrong in society, they should stick to their product. Like, it's when celebrities talk about policy. Like, just shut the fuck up. Just shut up. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, I mean, listen, unless you're an expert in the field, whatever. I mean, everyone's entitled to free speech, but I think that's the darker side where they're trying to like almost shape the world into this new place that has nothing to do with their brand. And I think that's really, really sad. I think every time that, every time that happens in society, and you know what the whole undercurrent is? The ends justifies the means. That's what they're all saying. Whatever the end, and If you look back in history, anytime the ends justified the means, bad shit ended up happening in the name of that.
0: I think you're right as well. And I suspect that there's a, some degree of cynicism. You only have to investigate whether or not the affiliations that are being declared are, are, are along racial lines or gender or sexual lines. Usually you'll find that while there's a lot of artificial overt stuff happening when it comes to who gets the money, you know, they're not doing it at that end. They're not at the end of the money, making sure let's make sure this is distributed right. fairly. Let's right, make sure right, that we're right. supporting these causes. There's never sacrifice. I mean, I guess the one of the challenges, like as a person that's gone through what you've gone through, gone through like a sort of a moral nadir, like gone through sort of giddy and giddy and high high velocity life, space shuttle life, explosive life. One of the things that, like you know, in my own uh, a version of that life, um, you know, w- w- the, which varies in, in loads of ways, but has some crossovers, you know, certainly identify with you a lot. Like for me, I've wound up in this place where I have to make some kind of connection with a value system that is transcendent of material things. I don't just mean in terms of acquiring stuff because I like comfort. I like to be able to do what the fuck I want. you know what I mean? I don't like obstacles in my way. I don't like rules. I don't like nobody telling me what to do. I mean, I've got a lot of things that are pretty libertarian about me. But I've also got a sort of an anarchist side in the literal sense, as in I feel like communities ought to be able to organise themselves free from the I- I- intervention of I Never the state or big businesses that are, you know, have got the game rigged to such a degree, you know. So, and the thing that like underwrites that, or at least stirs it and nurtures it in me, is this kind of belief in some idea of good, Jordan. The uh, an idea of that like, we can be beautiful and we can change the world. And when I listen to you and your sort of like your sort of priapic flow, I think, man, this dude could do all sorts of, you know, like you have done all kinds of, you know, <laughs> you continue to create amazing things. I wonder how this plays out in your spiritual, you know, your what I think I've heard you refer to as your highest value systems. How you apply this energy to that? What, where you apply it? Almost, I suppose, outside of the economic and business sphere.
2: So, you know, over the years, you know, I, I always have this internal struggle with me like that, that I, you know, I did this stuff in 1988 through 95, really, right? There was this defined period of my life and it's very, it's very difficult just so you know, like you, you sort of like, there's this, you know, you have this sort of this, this brand, which I have is my, my personal brand. It represents so much great stuff and a lot of bad stuff too, Right. And I have my own internal struggle of how, you know, okay, what's my message to the world? But also how do I just feel as I move through the world myself? Like, what am I thinking? You know, and it's it's I'll tell you what, it's very difficult because on some level, like I, I always said, my primary natural calling was to be a preacher. <laughs> it was to go out there and really talk about this stuff and, re- and really talk about life and self-improvement and tapping into the source. And, you know, I always thought that one day I would eventually gravitate towards doing that. Somehow, you know, you get caught up in the daily struggles of life and it, when I first came out of jail it was about reestablishing myself financially and then I got very, then that, that happened and I became, you know, really well known around the world and I used it as a platform to travel and teach war, people sales around the world and business and I feel really great about that because I think I spread a message of empowerment around the world uh, that's impacted probably, God knows, tens of millions of people because thankfully because of the movie and they'll see my stuff online i've spoken in front of millions of people so i I think that i certainly do have the ability to go in and make major impact in these areas um and i think i'm in the i'm in the process it's like this sort of process i'm in right now of doing that of spreading a message before when you first came on i said you know it's really hard i'm when these platforms i want to stay on brand but I wanna make sure my message doesn't get lost. And I was just talking about this very thing, like there's things I wanna get out to the public that, that the platforms don't want me to say, not that they're against what I'm saying, they don't think it's engaging enough that people, they'll make it go viral. So there's this really weird thing about, you know, what makes money, what goes viral, and what's the best message for people. And I'm trying actively, as you heard, to make sure I integrate that stuff into my business as well. The message about self-empowerment, and I think it's a very important message spiritually, you know, I'm one of these people that, you know, I'm not sure about the whole, you know, if, you know, are we in a real or uh, universe or a simulation? You know, I think as scary as it sounds, it's pointing towards a simulation, you know, and there's so many things that happen each day that we're make that a lot more easy to say, wow, that's why. So, ah, that's why there's all these things are happening because it almost seems like my life is unreal in some ways, right? <laughs> but um, I think, you know, spiritually, you know, I, I I believe in God, but not like in some man sitting on a chair passing judgment. I believe more in the energy of the universe, and I believe in cause and effect and karma, and I believe that um, we don't quite die after we're I think the biggest thing is that we're all – not separate. I think we we've evolved yeah. to think that we're separate. I think that's the the biggest thing. And this is really weird thing that the human evolutionary, you know, our system of being coming self aware has been this trick into thinking that we're all separate from one another. Where in fact it's all like a shared consciousness. That's what I I really believe. Yeah, I
0: believe that as well, and I believe like that if you believe something, that you can make a lot of people believe it. If you believe in God and oneness, then my God, God help anybody that gets on the end of a phone with you telling them that that's reality, because <laughs> yeah, I've heard the way you sell, man. It's uh, Jordan, it's so beautiful to talk to you. You're so um, unusual and brilliant and fast and varied. It's a a really wonderful mind to encounter. I'm really grateful to be able to chat to you like this. Well, I
2: feel the same way about you. Honestly, that's stroking you. I I have to say that you're probably one of the most well-spoken people I've ever heard in terms of your ability to get... Esoteric points across in an engaging way. You certainly, if you were on the phone, boy, I could have done it. He was a young Strattonite, you Russell, you would have just absolutely smashed it on the telephone. This is for certain. I could have done it. I'd have risen up through them ranks, wouldn't I? But I might have died
0: at one of them parties, mate. I'm not good at controlling it. You'd have been fishing me out of some pool. Exactly. You'd have been fun on the yacht,
2: for sure, no doubt about it.
0: (laughs) Amazing, amazing stuff. Oh, well, I hope we can stay in touch and maybe talk about some of these things about social media and like, you know, possibilities for collaboration should an opportunity present itself. I'd certainly be grateful.
2: Me too, my friend. Thanks for this, it's really great.
0: Great to talk to you. Good luck with your day.
2: Thanks, take care.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that. And if you did and you want to be part of this community, sign up to our mailing list at russellbrand.com. Go over now and listen to Above the Noise. I really want it to do well so I can keep making them. You know, I want to make sure people listen to this stuff, for God's sake. Do I only get other people to listen to this podcast, so I can start forming a sort of some sort of cult community. What do you want to call it? You want a cult? I want a cult. What do you want? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> then don't want nothing, and I want a cult. Somehow, though, we get along.
1: No, I really don't want it. Nothing would be great.
0: Where Where do you <laughs> want to live in the cult? No, on the outskirts or right in the center of town.
1: No, and Elsewhere? I'm not in
0: it I'm not in the call Jen darling <laughs> it's too late for you dear
1: no I really don't want... you invite no, yourself in I as a little child I don't want anyone to talk doing to doing a
0: website I... people won't talk to you Jen your
1: personality takes <laughs> me nothing to worry about there I know I've developed this personality for that purpose
0: well job done you are repellent congratulations <laughs> have a badge have a cigar yeah no I think you're loving yeah. it <laughs> right now come on <laughs> That's the end now, isn't it? Is it? Thank you (laughs) for listening (laughs) to Under the Skin (laughs) Goodbye Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Russell Brand Goodbye Thank you there to our dear Justin (laughs) Hawkins for making that. Sorry, I'm eating a banana. Join us next week on Under the end this game from Luminary. Thank you.